business was always something that was very glamorous and very interesting. And being able to, you know, turn something from nothing was always something that I found pretty interesting. And my heroes were those guys who were able to do that. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs. But there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Michael Loeb. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Why, thank you. You know, you've been uber successful in a lot of different industries, including building, you know, you have the media side, you've built your own incubator. That's frankly a testament to how an incubator could be built from my perspective as someone that's worked with a lot of them. You've had a lot of success there and done a lot of things. Frankly, many successful people have failed assuming they can help jumpstart other companies and find great entrepreneurs and be that support system. But to take us all the way back, I assume it for five years old, you weren't finding the local entrepreneurs of your neighborhood and pairing them together and have, hosting them in your house. Like, where did this start? Yeah. Give me where were you born? Thank you. I'll, let me talk about the last thing before I talk about sure. the first thing. I do think there's an entrepreneur gene, right? <laughs> and I do think that entrepreneurs are different. And I think one of the byproducts of that is they are the kid with the lemonade stand and the paper route and cutting the neighbor's lawn. Do you think it's actually a gene like it is inherited from your dad, your grandfather, or? Who knows? It's just a way of thinking, right? It's a differentiated way of thinking. I do think that uh, certain cultures are predisposed to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, just because it gets enculturated and, you know, what is you know, around the family dinner table, what are you talking about, right? Yeah, I agree. There's a nurture aspect to it that I've seen too. Whereas if you have entrepreneurial parents, it's hard not to be. Yep. And so I think that's entirely right. And I think you see that ambition and you see that love of kind of commerce and earning. And, you know, you see that kid that, you know, gets a dollar or a quarter and gets really excited about that. That is, I think, where it starts. I think entrepreneurs do a couple of other things. One, they question just about everything. They look at everything and they say, it can be done better. And I got an idea of how. And I say of entrepreneurs that they believe that stoplights are for everybody else. For them, it's an opportunity, right? It's red, everybody else is stopping, I can go faster. And they think the laws of physics, you know, that gravity applies to everybody else, but not them. So there is a certain contrarian thinking, and this is supported by, you know, guys like Warren Buffett, who said that if the path to riches could be found in books, every librarian would be a billionaire. And they're not. If you look at the great entrepreneurs, you know, the Jobs, the Dells, the Zuckerbergs, and on and on and on. They all quit school in their sophomore year. Yep. They quit because, you know, college is really a view to the past, right? And it is true that people who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And you should know history's lesson, but realize that it's got to be applied through the lens of today and tomorrow. Yep. But an entrepreneur, they're not interested in, you know, history or the past. They're trying to invent the future. And so that's why they they quit. There's nothing there for them. Or spoken another way, the future is much more exciting. And that's why they leave school and go on their own. And yeah, do you think it's an anti-school thing or do you think it's they already have their idea? Like, because a lot of these people that have dropped out of school, like Mark dropped out of school because Facebook was taking off. It wasn't 
No, I, I think that's it. I think that it's not that school, look, these people tend to be very, if there's one thing, there's a bunch of things that connect them, but one of the things that connect them is they're smart, right? Yeah. These people are really smart and they're curious. And it's not that they're not interested in history or in books. It's just that, you know, the future is much more exciting. So it's, yeah. um, I think it's much more from a positive place than a negative. It's not like what I'm doing right now is really dull and right. what I want to do is much more exciting. It really is the bright, shiny object and look what I can invent. And, you know, they ask the question, why doesn't anybody do this? Right? Yep. And if you follow how it happened to each one of them, there was that aha moment. Like, take a look at Michael Dell. You know, he's going to the University of Texas. He found out that, you know, the computers that you could buy, you know, at CompUSA were not fast enough. He put in some more chips to make them go faster, found out that it was a big demand and said, you know what? I can do this, you know, full time. Yeah. You know, most of it is like that. Most of it is this discovery out of doing something, you know, Gates worked, was a computer programmer before nerds became at all fashionable. And yeah. uh, that's kind of how it begins. And yeah, I, I totally agree. It's the why not me mentality too. Like, it's not yeah. just, this is stupid. And it's like, well, I guess I'll fix it. And you know what they don't ask? Everybody asks the question, when we come up with something new, one of the typical questions are, you know, why didn't somebody else think about it? And an entrepreneur doesn't think like that. They say, of course, nobody else thought about it. Or, you know, it's interesting, Eric. It's not that nobody else thought about it. Nobody else was brave enough to take what it was and follow that dream and put it all in. I mean, you can't do it halfway. You got to go all in. Yep. And, you know, Facebook was not the first social network, as you know. Yep. Right? Zuckerberg. Just, and, you know, when Steve Jobs came up with, you know, the iPhone, there was already a, a BlackBerry. He just yep. came up with something better. And somehow, if it's better enough, it's it's totally novel and revolutionary. Nobody compares the iPhone to a BlackBerry. Right. I mean, it's even the iPod when he came out with it. It was so revolutionary. And like how many MP3 players were already on the market? There were tons. Yeah, but tons. But it was this one differentiator that, you know, a lot of people would look at and say that's not enough. I mean, you know, exactly what you said. There's a lot of MP3 players in the marketplace. What's the big differentiator here? And when it gets explained to you, most people would still say, well, it's, you know, no big deal, but somehow it becomes a giant deal. Yeah. And, you know, entrepreneurs, I think, think differently and they have a courage. And part of their courage is that they don't believe, well, they have an Edisonian view of failure. And he famously said, I never failed. I just found out. I just learned 10,000 ways how not to make a light bulb. Yep. And an entrepreneur goes through life like that, that it's just a series of learning experiences and that you, you know, if you fall down on this one, there's going to be something right behind it and you get behind that and that's going to be successful. And if you have that resolve and that courage that can guide you to a lot of things and yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that when they get into their careers and they get married, then they got to make a big decision. And the big decision is, do I give it all up? And, you know, do I put everything on the come line and hope that, you know, it comes up red? And so entrepreneurs tend to start early. Yep. Not me. Well, and so let's go into that. So were you, you know, at four years old, were you already, where, when did that entrepreneurial bug hit you? How old were you? Yeah. So I am the son of a journalist. 
And my dad was a journalist of some renown. He spent the bulk of his career at Time, Inc. And he started writing for Time Magazine and became an editor of Time, uh, became the editor of Money Magazine, which he essentially put into the notion of personal finance on the map. And for the last 10 years of his career at Time, he was the head of Fortune Magazine. So the managing editor of Fortune Magazine. And we would, our dinner conversation was exactly that, right? It was about investments and business models and, you know, how people have become successful. Jack Welch was the subject of more than one dinner conversation. And that is what, you know, we had a steady diet of. And so when I went to school and I grew up in Queens and my dad had us move to Scarsdale in Westchester for the good school systems. And he was yep. trying to snatch victory out of the jaws of defeat. So I went to, after high school, went to college and yeah, I was that kid who was always thinking of, you know, new business ideas. And that's how, by the way, and I get that feedback from, you know, when I go to a college reunion, people remember me as that guy, right? Coming up with you know, new business ideas. And I think that- And it just is hard to interrupt, but this is really interesting. So your dad wasn't necessarily an entrepreneur. Like he was a business guy, but he wasn't an entrepreneur. But you grew up around so highlighting and talking about so much entrepreneurship that it still became ingrained Mm -hmm. in you. That is- Mm -hmm. He wasn't, no, he was, by the way, you know, the diametrically opposite of an entrepreneur. And that is because he was a product of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're a product of the Great Depression, you are so focused on putting food on the table. Yep. My parents in my lifetime, I think, owned four automobiles. The last one that they owned was a 1982 Toyota, and it started out as a maroon car. By the end of the life of the car, it was pink, okay, because <laughs> it yeah. sat outside and the roof was literally rusting in, right? But yep. they weren't going to get rid of that car. Yep. And my dad would go to Seville Row in England, spend a fair amount of money on a suit, but he would keep that suit for 20 years, right? And would get, you know, three pairs of pants, no kidding, before it was fashionable because the jacket would wear out at one third of the rate of the pants. So Got he had three pairs of pants. So, you know, they were penurious. They were, you know, he was totally focused on getting food on the table. And in that mindset, it's, impossible to be an entrepreneur. On the other hand, we did talk about business and business models, and you had a steady diet of people who became successful in how they did it. And I think that you just hear enough about that, and you all of a sudden become, if not proficient, you become knowledgeable. And that is, they're thematically had things that were similar, which is even if it was somebody who went to a Fortune 500 company, they got there and they made all these changes and all of a sudden this slow growth company or negative growth company, they were able to put some zip into it by doing these three moves. And that onto itself is kind of an entrepreneurial thought. So steady diet of that and always had that business was always something that was very glamorous and very interesting and being able to, you know, turn something from nothing was always something that I found pretty interesting. And my heroes were those guys who were able to do that. Jack Welch, as you mentioned. So what was the first young business you started? Did you do the lemonade stand or like, what was the like initial stuff you did? Yeah, I did like all the lawns in the neighborhood in Scarsdale. Yeah. So I had a Toro lawnmower 
And I learned how to take it apart and oil it up and do all that stuff because you had to and sharpen the blades. But, you know, 10 houses in the neighborhoods, I would, I cut their lawns like all day. I'm probably going to die of some terrible disease because I'm, you know, inhaling all that, you know, exhaust all the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's, that was my thing. But yeah, I was always that kid. Had a paper route, had probably had a lemonade stand. I was a metal sculptor. Interesting. I would make art and actually sell it. So um, wow. had an oxyacetylene torch in my parents' basement, which they dare not tell the insurance agent because <laughs> we're pretty sure it was illegal. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so no, I was that, you know, love the idea of making money. Love the idea <laughs> of, you know, here's how much the lawnmower costs and here's how much the gas costs. And this is what I'm getting every week. Yep. And yeah. so you had it, you already had a mind, not just for revenue, but profitability. You're looking at costs as well and making sure that you were walking away. Cause I know a lot of young kids start their lemonade stand and they don't really do the math. The parents pay for the lemonades or, or whatever. Oh, no, I did the math. No. I also, one interesting, well, for me anyway, chapter, and it's like more of a third of a chapter in my life is that I got a job and I helped to build that's aggrandizing uh, the Alaska pipeline. So this is, we're talking 1975. I had my 20th birthday on the North Slope, and I started out, how I got that job is I belonged to a stevedoring union in Port Elizabeth, New Jersey, and I did that during the summers to stay in shape for wrestling, because I worked in a cocoa warehouse, and the cocoa bags weighed between 163 and 165 pounds, and you and another guy would have hooks in their hands, and you would swing it all day, and mm -hmm. signed up and got a job on the North Slope, and I did that for, you know, multiple months, lift, lift, missed some school, but made it up mm -hmm. college. But I was making up to, and you got to go backwards in time, up to $3,000 a week at a time when Amherst College cost about $4,600 a year. So that was, you know, like a, a thing was this idea of making money. Got it. And so you go from college, what comes after that? Where did you really start off your career? How did you start building towards this? Yeah. So I wanted to join HBO and HBO huh. in its day was, you know, that super sexy company yeah. that everybody wanted to join. And it was a Time Inc. property. Uh -huh. And I, you know, tried like the Dickens to get hired by them and they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have anything of me. And Finally, Time Inc. was launching a magazine called TV Cable Week, and it had the right middle name. And I joined that in part because they had they were so confident that it would work. It was supposed to be a competitor to TV Guide. Yep. And they were going to do something unique, which was they were going to have by cable operator the programming for all the cable channels, which in the day, there was nothing describing the programming or the times back in the day. It was uh, TV Guide only had CBS, NBC, and then they had the local channels, but they did not have, they had the three big ones, including ABC. They had those three and the locals, so they had you know, six channels that they would tell you what was televised and what time. But even back then, cable was giving you like 75 channels and you wouldn't this know. Is the 70s? You're this is, no, later than that. This would have been the 80s. Sorry. The 80s. Okay, got it. And anyway, it was a cat, can't miss title. That was the one that I joined. So I essentially followed my dad into Time Inc. Mm -hmm. 
And I then went from TV Cable Week, which was a failed experiment, and timing spent 52 million codified in a book called The Fanciest Dive. And but then I found my way to Sports Illustrated. Uh-huh. And uh, rose through the ranks of Sports Illustrated had something to do with putting together sports, you know, kind of the discovery of bloopers videos, uh, which were all used as a premium. And I'm one of the patent holders for the sneaker phone and the football phone. And uh, those two were premiums for Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. Uh, launched uh, or helped to launch Sports Illustrated for Kids and was tapped to launch Entertainment Weekly, which was a job that got me fired. And so I'm fired from Time Inc. What got you fired? What actually happened there? Well, what got me fired is they teamed me up with an editor that had a very different vision of what Entertainment Weekly was going to be. It was more going to be about books and poetry and ballet, which is fine, but the last name is weekly and you got to get to at least a million in circulation and go above the fixed variable divide. And you're not going to do it unless you are a little bit more populist. Yeah. And I thought of Entertainment Weekly as the Sports Illustrated of Entertainment. So substitute the big yep. three sports for the big three forms of entertainment. And when your editor and you see things that differently, that's really the formula for failure. And so yep. Yep. it was a very rocky first year and we were both shown the door. And I didn't mean to get revenge, but I started the company outside of Time Inc. that I was trying to start inside of Time Inc., which was Synapse. And Synapse presupposed the advent of credit card into the magazine and newspaper industry. And until that point, it didn't exist or largely didn't exist. And it was more than a SaaS-based model. Instead of just a SaaS-based model, we also sold and serviced the subscription, And we got it up to 70 million subscriptions a year on our platform. And the big advance was that lifetime value was up about two and a half X because instead of inertia being your your mortal enemy, it became your best friend because do nothing and the subscription would continue versus renewal notices and bills where you had to take an action. So that company grew to, you know, $400 million top line and $100 million bottom line. And I was- And what period of time was that? That was nine years. And what was the big, I mean, it was just as simple as you were taking every magazine out there and converting it to a subscription model where, so their business model was better and they needed you as a partner anyways. So it was- was It was coming up with new channels to sale. Yep. And one of the advances or one of the inventions of the company was, okay, now that we have this as a thesis, how do we get to a credit card audience? And at the time, that was very difficult. Credit card companies paired up with a lot of marketers and they would dole out, you know, how many times you can mail a customer or mail a credit card holder or phone them. And all those landing slots were taken up. And we made the observation that credit card media, the statement itself, back when we had paper statements, were mailed out in copious amounts, about, you know, 6 billion a year went out and they were all underweight. They all weighed about seven tenths of an ounce. And we went to the banks and literally bought the last three tenths of an ounce and put promotional materials in. And the promotion not only went out, but it went back in to the credit card company itself, because bear in mind, they embedded a reply envelope. And that was universally used, like 98% of what went out went back. And all we had to do was hitch a ride on the way back. And that was 
the media form that got us started. We branched. Why'd you open those doors into the banks and the credit card companies? Like they're not notoriously easygoing about this kind of thing. Yeah, glad you asked because that opens up to an important discussion, which was my partner in that business was a guy named Jay Walker. And Jay had relationships with a couple of banks, Citibank in particular, and that was the opening. And Jay was, um, and we worked together on Synapse for the first couple of years. Jay is something of a restless intellect. And after a while, his best role was to think of the next thing we could do together. And there was many, many different ideas that he would share with me. And one day it was Priceline.com. Mm-hmm. which uh, was the company that was launched inside of Synapse, which was a very interesting experiment. We did not know if the people who were working on both would spit the bit or embrace it. Turns out they embraced it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that we wound up splitting the companies in half. But that experiment of one workforce working on multiple launches was something that has been anniversary intrigued me and writ large, that's what Logue NYC is right now. So we have about two dozen companies that we're building. We've had a number of exits since we started. And we have, I think of, sometimes I think of the, you know, the whole play as a Tootsie Pop with the chocolatey center, all the companies and the hard candy outside. Mm-hmm. That is what we call shared services. And the concept behind shared services is the Swiss army knife that every company needs to scale. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do is put together four things that tend to be disparate, which is the ideas, the entrepreneurs, the execution and the capital. Mm -hmm. And add to that, you know, facilities and community. And that's kind of the whole mash that we have today. Makes sense. And so where do you feel like you hit, hit, you know, being the son of a successful journalist, but a journalist, when did you hit that kind of stride of like massive success? I mean, you're now an icon when it comes to business and I'll say my words, but you know, my, my favorite. Well, let's hope everybody adopts your words. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) We'll we'll put it out there and we can title it that. But I I mean, one of my favorite things that I heard buzzing around, obviously you have a beautiful home in the Hamptons and it's the billions home, the home Mm -hmm. from the show. So like what a show that's trying to depict billionaires chose to use your home as a depiction of billionaires. So there's something there about you've become that icon in a lot of ways. I can only compliment them, the producers on their taste. Amen. (laughs) When did that turning point happen? It really happened, I think, when, you know, nine years in to Synapse, yep. which, by the way, was bootstrapped. So that's that's a rarity these yes. days. But back in the day, that's how you start a company. You didn't have right. outside capital. And we had none. And it was when uh, I'm bringing the company public in 2000 and Time Inc. said, sounds like you're serious about this. Wouldn't you rather have a private sale? And when we did that private sale, and it was done in installments, it was an earnout. My dad had an expression about gangsters dying in bed to describe a rare event, but mm-hmm. because Got um, it. Yeah. entrepreneurs are advised not to have an earnout, but this actually was an earnout that worked well for both parties. But it was when that deal was done and that first big check that came in was really when it dawned on me that this was, you know that this was a big deal. And that was, again, 20 years ago. 
Okay, got it. I was going to ask about how old you are. So 20 years ago. And so you get this earnout, did, and you completed the earnout. How long was that earnout? It was five years. But five years now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was an $800 million transaction over five years. But, you know, it split between Jay, myself, and, and the people that were working. And one, one of the prouder events was that when that deal was struck, 26 people at Synapse became millionaires in a wow. moment, which was fun. And everybody participated in that. And my kind of sin qua non example was that our receptionist who was there from the very beginning, we're talking about the model where, you know, everybody had a landline and somebody had to pick it up. And then when you visited the company, you, you know, were in a waiting room and the receptionist was right there in the waiting room. And that person was very important. They were your front door. And she made about $350,000 in the transaction, which for her was totally transformative. She paid off her house and had enough for her daughter's education. So that was, that was a good day. That yeah, was a good day. That is amazing. And there is something that, you know, there's a lot of negative publicity around business owners these days, but as someone that shares that, like most business owners are rewarded by the success of their people. And like yeah. the fact that you can see that, that something you created and you're bootstrapped, you didn't take other people's money. You bootstrapped yep. this company mm -hmm. and were able to not and make 26 people millionaires and give a receptionist $350,000 on the sale, mm -hmm. make an $800 million sale in nine years. Like that's mm -hmm. massive. Yeah. So I think most owners uh, and most entrepreneurs with successful businesses are sharers in part, because if you are that entrepreneur, you think that this is just the first leg. Right. I'm going to I'm going to do it again and again. And if you look at entrepreneurs, they do have a nasty habit of becoming serial entrepreneurs, because <laughs> aside from, you know, having a baby, right, having a, you know, a baby company is like yeah. the next most fun. And yeah. you come up with an idea, you put it in practice, you defy all odds because. For every believer, there's about 10 non-believers, right? You know, it's been done before. It's never going to think of like Steve Jobs coming up with the iPhone or the iPod. How many people told him this can't possibly work, right? Yeah, you know, the engineering is going to fail. And yes, there's a ton of these things in the marketplace and you could build whatever you want, but, you know, then you're going to get Samsung or something just to knock you off. And, you know, nobody makes money on hardware anyway. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many people, you know, said, no, this can't work. And he was the lone voice. Think of Elon Musk, right? Yeah. Think of, I mean, Great example. can you imagine, can you imagine, imagine, imagine Elon Musk going in to a bank and asking for a billion dollars yep. and they say, Mr. Musk, what's your idea? Well, I'm going to build the great American car company. Yep. And they go, oh, okay, so you're going to build million-dollar supercars. No, 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 no. I'm going to build a lot of $35,000 cars <laughs> that everybody can afford. And they're going to go, okay, Mr. Musk, well, where are you going to build these? I'm going to build these in California, right? Yeah. I mean, no, Mr. You, meant, you meant to say Ohio, right? Yeah. You, you really meant to say Ohio or maybe Alabama. California, you're going to yeah. build it in California, like the highest labor cost yeah. in the United States. That's where you're going to build this. And exactly what type of car is this going to be? Yeah. And he says, electric. And they go, electric? You're going to build electric cars? And they say, with what? Big, giant batteries? And he says, no, little, tiny watch batteries. Yeah. We're going to have 10,000 watch batteries inside of an electric car. And at that point, he gets thrown out of law. Get the hell out of my yeah, office. I actually was fortunate I sat in a talk with Peter Thiel about when Elon Musk called him to uh, pitch the idea. And he goes, Elon's like, yeah, I'm going to start a new car company. It's going to be all electric. Same, kind of the same pitch you just yeah. said. 
And Peter goes, when's the last time there was a new American car company? And it was like 1945 Jeep. Don't you think it's about yeah. time? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's, you see, that's the entrepreneurial spirit, right? Yeah. And I was going to say Walter P. Chrysler, but, you know, that was 90 years ago. But either way, it's been an awfully long time. Yeah. And, you know, it almost is like, you know, the play in the movie, The Producers. Like, I got the wrong script. I got the wrong actors. I got the wrong score. Where did I go right, right? So, I mean, <laughs> if you had to start another car company, right? I mean, you yep. would describe every one of those decisions as wrong. Yep. A bank would look at that and say, you know, you're wrong. You're wrong, 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 wrong. Everything about it is wrong. So- and it is almost a cockiness to an entrepreneur, every, every, including I'm sure you with Synapse, like I'm sure people told you that's a really dumb idea. It's never going to work. No one's going to do this. No one's going to do that, et cetera. Like who's going to give their credit card and have it just be hit? Like whatever that line was, same thing for even my business, tons of people, very smart people that I respected yeah. told me it will yeah. never work. Yeah. So, and that's exactly right. And what I, I think about entrepreneurs, they're theory based right? They're theory-based. And I don't know for sure, but my suspicion is the theory, the fundamental theory behind a Tesla, and again, I, I haven't researched this, is that you can build it with a fraction of the parts, like 75% less parts. And if you look at an internal combustion engine, I mean, you know, the whole thing, it shouldn't work. I mean, it's like, let me get this straight. I'm going to take a block of metal I'm going to pour gasoline vapor in it and I'm going to explode it over yep. and over and over again. Well, doesn't the whole thing blow up, right? Yep. And if you look at an engine and I now have a four-year-old, so that's all he looks at. But if you look <laughs> at an engine, I mean, oh my God. I mean, it's got just the engine alone has got thousands of little tiny parts. And I think, Eric, if you look at the progression, we got very good at machining right? We got very good at, there's an expression that engineers and architects will build bridges and roads, whether you need them or not. Well, we got very good at attenuated supply chains all over the world. And we got very good at machining little tiny parts and bringing them in from all parts of the world and then putting them together. And they would fit within like two microns, right? Mm -hmm. The engineers went crazy, right? Engineers gone wild because it's like, Ooh, now I can make it with a thousand parts. Right. And I bet we're going to find in the fullness of time that a Tesla can go like a million miles. Right. Because yeah, I mean, you, I have one. They ask you to come in and maintain it like once every two to three years. Like, yeah. get that picture. Like, it's crazy I, how the yeah. expectations there. Well, the parallel is when piston engines gave away to jet engines. Yep. And they put jet engines, you know, the first jets on uh, the maintenance schedule of a piston engine. And for the first maintenance, they would open it up and they would say, oh my God, it's brand new, clean as a whistle. And, yep. uh, you know, coming a year from now. And so I think that what an entrepreneur does is they really see something. And if my proposition is correct, just think about this. Everybody's looking and seeing an electric car, right? Yep. But Elon Musk is looking and saying, I can build it with 75% fewer parts. Yeah. If you do that, you win. Just that, you win. Yep. 75 fewer parts and it's going to last a million miles. Yeah. You know? then, it, then you win. And the other thing you got to have faith in is the other piece is the world is going to run out of oil. Yep. And by contrast, battery technology, we're just in the first inning, right? Uh -huh. So, yep. one, you know, one thing goes up and the other thing goes down and it's just a matter of the, you know, finding the inflection point. 
And when everybody, we talked about the future and books and the past, when everybody is just citing all these facts, what they're doing is backward looking. And yep. what an entrepreneur does, they start with a thesis, a fundamental thesis, and it's all forward looking. Right. And it's how, it's a it's a look at how do we get there, not will it work or it's like how it's Elon Musk again. The cost of the car needs to be cheaper, and it's going to be batteries are expensive. So he's like, okay, well we need to find other cost savings. We need to find ways to make this last. And infrastructure was another thing he thought through, which was the first one. I mean, there was no infrastructure for electric cars yeah. before Tesla, and so there were electric cars already, but there was no infrastructure. So yeah. What the difference is, or one of the difference makers is capital formation, which again, was in much shorter supply than it is today. Mm -hmm. Because now, because there were so many pioneers and because we proved that the road less traveled can be the path to riches, yep. now it's uh, much easier to get people to believe and yep. much easier to have capital formation. And you know, you take a guy like Musk and you look at, and I only read recently, he didn't invent Tesla. I always equated that. He came in on the board early in the curve, but you know, SpaceX, the boring company, I love the name of the boring company. Yeah. How cool. But you know, this notion that, you know, things are just not done the right way and are too expensive. And I'm going to go up against NASA. Okay. Just yeah. cause. Yep. Right. No private company ever attempted to do that. It was so big that it had to be the government. Right. Yep. And not just any government, but the American government. Right. Yep. So the government of the biggest economy in the world had to take this one on. And he said, you know what? I think I'm smart in the government. <laughs> yeah. You know, how audacious. Yep. So yeah. Well, that, it takes a guy that, I mean, he had several successful exits. I think Elon, I mean, he, well, he went all in on these companies too. He, had, he was at a point where it, well, it's not about money. I mean, I don't know if how true his statements have been recently, but he's saying he's selling all his assets and houses because why do I even need them? Like, this is a guy that, you know, definitely somewhere on the spectrum too, in some ways, but he just, he has no need for, he's not doing this for the financial win of it. Yeah. He's doing it for the, you know, humanity. Yeah, I agree with that, but don't ask me to sell my house. I really like it. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's just a different driver. I mean, I don't. I mean, oh yeah, that that is I, that's true. They do say of entrepreneurs, and I do think this is true that the you know that the asset value or the money that you have in the bank or that sort of thing is it's just a way of keeping score. Yep, hundred percent. Um, you know, that's not true in the beginning because you right. kind of want to trade in your follow. But it's, yeah, it's once you hit that point where there's a, I mean, not, I shouldn't say quick, but once you hit a certain threshold of success, you, it's all the same at that point. Like it's not, you're not going to buy another big house. And that's not what, that is not the win. You might do it anyways, but the way, as you said, it's a scoreboard, but it's more about creating something. I do believe that. Stay hungry, young man. Yeah. Amen. So you went from, you know, once you sold the timing, was Priceline a part of that deal or was it separate? No, that, that was separate. Priceline okay. actually went public uh -huh. in 99 and Synapse was following it. Got it. And that's when timing said, wouldn't you prefer to have a private deal? Yeah. Understood. And then did you immediately start incubating other companies because Priceline worked that way or what, what happened? No, then? No. no. Once I did the deal with Time Inc. and I had that earn out, that, was, that required all of my attention because it was right. worth all of my attention. It was yeah. very leverageable. It was unusual that the, the design play was that about two thirds were back-end loaded. It turned out that 80% was back-end loaded because the back-end worked out that well. Yeah. But yeah, that was attention worthy. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And so what happened after the earnout? Did you take a break? Did you, what nope. did you do? No, nope, I didn't take a break. I gathered one of 
my favorite executives from Synapse, a guy who followed me from Time Inc. to Synapse and Priceline. And then uh, Rich Vogel, who is my partner, and we've been working together for 30 plus years. Eric, you've seen our office, so you know that we have two desks in one office and we face one another. Yep. That's because we can overhear each other's conversations, something that Rich has done more than once. And a lot of conversations uh, start with when I get off the phone and he says, you know what you just promised? And I said, what? <laughs> and he says, well, you promised this. I said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. <laughs> Anyhow, but we've been collaborating for a long time. And when I got my last turnout check in 2006, you know, and, and you're right, it's, it's a disease, it's infectious. And, you know, I could have hung up the spurs at that time, but it just was not at all interesting. Yeah, that was a loaded question. M most can't. <laughs> and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it is a drug. It's your high. It's the most fun you know, you can have is after having a baby is, is starting a company. Having said that, entrepreneurs really cope with failure pretty well because they don't call it failure, as we talked about. What they call it is learning experience, but they never feel like they failed. They feel like the clock ran out, that, you know, there was some environmental that tripped them up. But, uh, and that, by the way, serves them well yeah when i think it's it's even if the mistake or the failure is on them meaning like this didn't work because i didn't sell well identifying the reason allows them to learn from it and move to the next thing so even if it's not environmental i think they cope with yeah, it i think you're right they tend by the way not to blame other people as a group of people they tend to right. accept that you know it's on me i i you know i saw it this way and i got fooled but they um you know they tend to be realistic mm-hmm and as you can tell, I'm a fan of entrepreneurs, which is one of the things we do do in our company is we celebrate entrepreneurs. We want to see them win. We protect them through multiple rounds. And apropos to rounds, what we do is when we spin up a company, we build it to a certain scale where money coming in is thought of as scaling capital as opposed to you know super early stage stuff where you get highly diluted. But we will protect entrepreneurs through what otherwise would be multiple rounds. And so their you know, stake is secure. And really what we try to drive is to success. You know, you listen to VCs and you hear about two and 10 or one and 10. Yeah. And what we wanted is five, six, seven and 10. And part of it is our structure. Part of it is our definition of success. Uh, but, you know, that's our our goal. But after Synapse, Rich and I were trolling for the what's next of it. We thought, let's start a fund. And back then I thought I could cut in the middle of the line and start right away with a hundred million dollar fund. But no, you gotta, you know, you might've been a proven entrepreneur, but you're not a proven fund guy. So you gotta start with 25 and 2% of 25 million doesn't pay a lot of bills. And the carry on 25 million doesn't, you know, is not very gratifying when you've done the size deal that we already did. Yep. Then I thought maybe I'd buy a few companies in the rear view mirror. We're always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Mm -hmm. We're never successful in consummating anything. And in the rear view mirror, half of those would have been turned out okay. And half would have been unmitigated disaster. And there you go. we thought, uh, you know what, we're really pretty good at the startup thing. Let's try it all over again. And let's dust off that Priceline Synapse model and write at large and have a group of people that are expert in working in startups, 
domain experts. What we have are people who help companies with some things that are, you know, a little bit more routine and mechanical, like back office accounting. Mm -hmm. But then you get into things like we have an in-house agency, ad agency that works on physical collateral, UI, UX, tech and marketing, which ranges from old school marketing to new school marketing. But the idea is the Swiss army knife that every company needs to yep. you know, start to scale. Yep. So when did it go from fund to maybe buying companies to that? Like how long did that take? That took about two years. Okay. So about two years of, you know, having it dawn on us that, you know, maybe what we should be doing is what we're good at. Yep. And, you know, the road less traveled. What I think you got to ask yourself the highest and best use question. What is my highest and best use? Yep. And part of it is if nobody else is doing this, if nobody else has conceived of this model of a, I used to call it a company factory, Katie Loeb, who you know, yep. said, oh, dad, that's like really old fashioned venture collective. <laughs> nice. Yes, I like or it. a venture collective. But that was not conceived of or in rare supply, most people looking at our model describe it as unique. I'm here to say at very least differentiated. What we get to do is the things that we think are fun. And about half of our companies started with one of an internally generated idea and half with an outside idea with some of those outside ideas early in the curve, very early in the curve companies that we mm -hmm. kind of you know, like what we're doing and we like what they're doing. And we kind of make an arrangement where we're their only source of capital for a time. Mm -hmm. And again, give them the resource to be uh, successful. So anyway, nice. that's one of the model today. So how many years has that been then? Yeah, that's been about a dozen years. Okay. And in the very beginning, of course, it's not what we have today. And even, even as, you know, five years ago, we might've had a portfolio of, three companies or five companies. Mm -hmm. And today it's about, you know, two dozen. Mm -hmm. And what has been the biggest learning from that from, in terms of like likelihood for success? What's the surprise yeah. through all that? I'm not going to tell you anything new when I say that team and Tam, right? So yeah, yeah. the team is very important. The entrepreneur at the center of the team is critically important. You know, we do have a no assholes rule, which is a good rule for anybody to have. We have the exact same rule. <laughs> it's a, um, you know, it's, it's funny, but it is true that one bad apple can, you know, sour the entire barrel. Yeah. So we look for you know, someone that is smart, is motivated, has a really good idea. And that, by the way, is internal or external. And yep. so that is maybe the most important thing. And then you get to Tam and is, is this novel? Who would buy it? What would they pay? Is this B2B or B2C? Is this, should this be a sale or should it be SaaS? So all those things have got to check out. What we also like, disruption and novelty. We used to call it first mover advantage. Yep. But we, we like being, if not the first in to the market close. I'm mindful of what I call Goldilocks. We want to be Goldilocks sized, which is to say that if it's too small, obviously it's not a interesting as in the addressable market is too small. Yeah. If it's too big and you're boiling the ocean, then it's, you're at risk for, you know, a Microsoft or an Amazon right. to pat you gently on the head and say, we'll take it from here. And, mm -hmm. you know, 
you'll remember, you know, many, many digital agencies and, you know, one at a time, Facebook would say, Oh, I like that feature set. Yep. And they said, buy me, buy me. And they go, why? I'm just going to copy you. Yep. You know, yeah. No barrier to entry. I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to copy you. And so it's like the dog chasing the car. What if they're going to catch it? Right. Yeah. So you got to be mindful of that. So, yeah, no, we see that a lot with the, our investments too. It's like, if this can be something that your main platform can just do themselves, you're in trouble. Yeah, for sure. And so that's, that's a couple of things that we look for. Is, Got it. Uh, and so a couple more questions for me. What's next? Sure. What do you think is coming down the pike for you? Well, thank you for asking that. This is a call to arms for all entrepreneurs. A friend of mine is Carolyn Everson of Facebook, mm-hmm. and she's like number three, four, or five over there. And back in March or April, I had a conversation with her. And it was, you know, what's, you know, COVID? What, what's the sum and substance of this? And she said that the world has been accelerated by 10 or 15 years. And I mm-hmm. think that's now a widely held uh, notion and if you just think, Eric, about this interchange right now, we would never have it, right? I mean, you would invite me on there and we would right. talk about when I'm next in California and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's kind of been a farewell to arms. It's like you had to go to California and you had to take that first edge, right? It used to be a signal of respect. Right, to show up first. Exactly. And now that we collectively found out that we don't have to do that and nobody can do that, I've discovered and I think we collectively discovered that we don't have to be there face to face and in person. And you not only, you know, it used to be, of course, that, you know, you'd fly out to the West Coast, you'd have time for three meetings and then you take the red eye back. Mm-hmm. And now in the same time that you can have three meetings, you can have 30 yep. and the playing field has been leveled. And so now everybody's got to play by that same rule of yep. we're not going to show up. We're just going to have to do this by distance. And I think that that is, that's going to be around, I think forever, right? Yep. It's not to say no one is ever going to get back in a plane. I think though that, you know, maybe, you know, B2B travel is going to be down by, I don't know, 40%, 50%. You pick I agree. Up. I think it's going to be massive. I think there's a lot of people realize that like now that it's in our culture, it's not necessary to have that first meeting. Why? Oh. Even on the receiving end, if you're, let's say it's a salesperson trying to meet with their client, the client doesn't expect it anymore either. So it's like, then why do it? Like, let's jump on. And then listen, to close a big deal or whatever, you know, or if you're going to get into a partnership with someone and want to look them in the eyes, like, yeah, I get it. But well, it's it more, I think, going to be to celebrate the big deal, right? Correct. I think we're yeah, going to do yeah. the big deal by Zoom. And then when we have it, yeah. you know, we're going to, you know, cheer ourselves on after the, you know, after the contract sign. Yeah, I agree. So, okay. You know, I think whole industries have got to rethink, you mm-hmm. know, commercial real estate. Yeah, I am yeah. talking to you from my office, but in New York City, they say the, um, you know, the occupancy rate these days is 10%. Right. 10% of the people are actually showing up. New York has, you know, the added difficulty of it is the most commuting city in the United States. About 60% of the people come here by bus or subway and people are not doing that so fast. So I think, you know, whole industries, they're highly predictable, but what they are, because we see it right now, are going to continue to be challenged. On the other hand, with the world accelerating 10 or 15 years in one, you know, one fell swoop, 
And what we haven't seen, which is so interesting, you would classify what we're going through now as a recession. Right. But what it hasn't had is the casualty of not being able to have capital formation. So right. the capital is available in copious amounts. Yep. And look at all the SPACs and the IPOs. And yep. I mean, it's a lot of formation capital that is available and is going to embrace new thinking. Because if you walk in and say, hey, my thesis is the world has changed. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I think we're going to look back on this, Eric, and we're going to say that this is the Cambrian moment for mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, Cambrian moment for new thinking, because you have this acceptance that it's going to have to be new thinking, this new dependency of everything digital. And, you know, the retail apocalypse is not going to go away. And it's going to join by, yep. you know, a travel apocalypse and the commercial real estate apocalypse in, in my yep. mind. I think the building I'm in, which is right in midtown Manhattan, will be a great condominium one day because, you know, why does it have to be commercial real estate? But I think this is the dawn of a new entrepreneurial era. So this is a kind of siren call calling all entrepreneurs because this is your time. This is your moment. You just, you combined two questions for me, which was perfect, which is what's next. And what would you recommend to people who can, you know, drive their first success, which is, I, I totally agree with you. I think yeah. there's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. Cause if you are yeah. actually someone that can grasp it, new problems and new solutions, you just nailed it. Like there's yeah. so, you know, it's, there's a lot of opportunity. And if you think about what will change, right. I talked about, you know, what will change for the worst, but let's think about what will change for the better. I think you and I can agree that the nature of work is going to change in the future. I mean, we've yep, all yep. figured out that you can work from home and that is, you know, half the way towards being a 1099. And if you are 1099, you have a lot of advantages. The employer has yep. got a lot of advantages. Your advantages are that 20% of your income is not taxed, Correct. that you can write off your home office, which is hard yep. to do as an employee and a car and your cable bill and a lot of other yep. things. But maybe the most important thing is that as a 1099, you get the money and the government has got to rip it out of your clutching hands. Right. And occupation is nine tenths of the law versus yep. the reverse, which is they skim off the top and skim yep. over the little. And that is only going to be more acute if we raise taxes, which depending on the administration is a certainty. Yeah. So I think the nature of work is going to change. I think how people conduct themselves in business is going to change. I think, you know, Eric, they're talking about 25% of the colleges going out of business. Yeah. Um, so I'm intrigued about how we adopted careers or how we mapped out a career in the 18th and 19th century, we had a guild system. It was more in Europe than it is here, but we became an apprentice to a great carpenter or a great blacksmith. And, you know, I think some form of that comes back. So, you know, for entrepreneurs who have a vision of what it's all going to look like, you know, this is your time and uh, your time to shine. So Agreed. Well, Michael, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on Hawk Talk. Well, thank you. Thank you, Eric. Good luck. <laughs> thank you. Talk soon. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, 
we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.